Hello, and thank you for joining. Daniel and I today talked about games three through seven of each LCS and previewed the World Series, as well as talked about the top five individuals we would be most happy seeing win the World Series in this upcoming matchup between the Rangers and the Diamondbacks. Let's get to it. Baseball isn't just numbers, numbers, numbers. This game is not being played on computers. You don't do that with a bunch of statistical gimmicks. You don't put a team together with a computer. We're talking weighted runs created plus, expected Woba, sweet spot rate, defensive runs above average, average exit velocity, barrel rate, XFIP, BABIP, SIERA. We are above replacement radio. And welcome to Buffalo Place Radio. We're talking baseball. Kind of whenever I'm your host, Chris Giotto, over there. On the other side of the screen is Daniel Curran. How you doing, Daniel? Chris, I'm doing very well today. It's been a while since the last time we talked. It's been so long since we talked that last time we potted, uh, the narrative was how bad these playoffs were and how we never had anything good happen in any games. And that narrative is long out the window with what happened in both LCSs. We got two seven-game series. Uh, we got some very good games, some come-from-behind wins, uh, some great pitching performances. We've gotten everything in just the last week. Yeah. And if Walk-offs. You're, if, you're, if you're listening uh, here, you know, and, and enjoyed these past, this past week of baseball, you know, the walk-offs, the, the one-run games, the late-gate heroics, uh, you're welcome because yeah. we reverse-jinxed this into uh, into existence. So. You know, you you only have you only have us to thank, which is uh, which is nice, but um, but yeah, it, it was it was pretty fun, like pretty fun having these competitive games. Um, you know, when we when we came on these microphones, you know, last week we thought the odds of of there being one game seven was really really low. Yeah, it was on two game sevens. Zero. Yeah, I mean the fact. I mean we didn't even think we'd be going back to Philadelphia. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And uh, and yeah, not only did they go back to Philadelphia, Arizona won in Philadelphia, which um, which was quite yeah. quite shocking. I so when we predicted these series before the LCS started, I had the Astros and Phillies, and obviously I got both of those wrong. But I think I did pretty well just on the fact that I predicted the NLCS would go seven. Yeah, like that that was a heck of a call, even if I had the Phillies winning. Yeah, I, I think there's, I think there's definitely some some pride to be taken there because I imagine most people had the Phillies dominating and most people were pretty secure with their picks after the first two games. And yeah, no, it it uh, everything just turned on its head once it went back to Arizona. And even when it came back, even when it came back to Philly, it wasn't quite the same. No, it really wasn't. I mean, Arizona held them to three runs over the last two games combined. Yeah, yeah, it's it's wild, especially considering how amazing the Phillies' offense had been doing at Citizens Bank Park. No matter what pitching staff, whether it be the Marlins, Braves, or Diamondbacks, but yeah, shut them, shut them down and shut them down when it mattered most. Like they had, Phillies were wretched with runners in scoring position the last two two games, which we'll get into. Um, but yeah, it's 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 exciting. Like Rangers, Diamondbacks. World Series, you know, the winner of this World Series will be breaking at least a 20-year drought. Um, if not, uh, if not a 20-year drought, it's technically 62 years. And then as yeah. for Texas, as a for for the Rangers in Texas, it would be about 51 years, I believe. Yeah. Um, so either yeah, way, anyone in Washington that's like rooting for the Rangers because they grew up watching the Senators. Yeah. Right. 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 
I, like, I, I, don't know, I don't know if there's anyone. I don't know if there's anyone doing that with the twins, but yeah, I, I bet it would have been very funny if we had the uh, the Twins Rangers uh, ALCS. We got the all the all Washington Senators series. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that would be that would be you know the battle for, I guess the battle for Washington. Even though they both left, it's just it's it remains that. <laughs> yeah, but um, yeah, I, a few people are complaining about, you know. The World Series not being compelling. I think it's pretty cool just to have two. I think everyone. I, I think anyone who's complaining about the World Series matchup is still watching anyway. I think they're just complaining on behalf of people that would have watched if it was something else. Yeah. Like, do we really? Do we really have people being like, if it's not Dodgers Yankees, I'm not watching? As I'm a Dodgers fan, Yankee fan, whatever. Like, if you're a Yankee fan and you're complaining about it not being like two big market games, you probably weren't watching just if the Yankees weren't in it. Same goes with the Dodgers, Red Sox fans saying this, like Cubs fans saying this. Like, yeah, exactly. I don't, I don't, I understand where people are coming from. If they're, if they care so much about world series ratings, I don't, I, I'm not, I can't find a way to care. Like the MLB could come out and say, actually, we're just changing everything and putting the A's and Rockies in the world series. And I'd be like, okay, when's first pitch? Yeah. <laughs> Kyle Freeland versus Joe Boyle. Let's see it. Game one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, it, like we predicted it would be Astros Phillies again, and, and we we would be looking forward to it. I think we would have seen it as an intriguing series, but I think Rangers Diamondbacks is about equally as intriguing. <laughs> yeah, it's... maybe not from the Nationals perspective, but if you're a baseball fan, like you were watching no matter what. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, so, yeah, I guess we'll get into that uh into that first team we're talking about with the rangers who you know in their own roller coaster way uh won the world's or, or won the uh, american league championship series and punched their ticket to the world series uh lost all their games at home but uh but but made it out and um because the astros lost all their games at home so they win in seven but um you know just going back to game three we'll go we'll kind of go go game by game but it, you know, the Astros' offense kind of reignited starting, uh, starting in in Arlington over there. Yeah. Uh. So you have some notes here in Game Three. The Astros had a fifty percent sweet spot rate, a twenty five percent barrel rate, and also the third highest expected WOBA and expected slugging in these in any playoff game in the Statcast era. They also had the most barrels by a team in any Statcast era playoff game. That goes back to twenty fifteen. I feel like. There's a lot more merit to that now. Obviously, there's going to be a little bit more merit every year, which uh, that goes for kind of anything. But uh, yeah, the the Astros won that game. Only uh, well, they won it. Um, what was the score? They scored a bunch of runs that game. I think it was eight five, eight five, eight five. That sounds about legit. Yeah, yeah. Uh, just hammering the ball. Max Scherzer had a rough start. Um, which we mm-hmm. talked about. You know, it was a possibility. Five, five in the first four innings. Yeah. Yeah, it was, it was a possibility, you know, considering, you know, he had a rough go against the Astros earlier in the season and just generally like going into a playoff atmosphere after what, five, six weeks of not pitching, that's that's going to be a challenge. And uh, and yeah, you know, it makes sense to that you're not going to be at your peak performance when you're when you're pitching like that. And Max Scherzer, you know, this year has not been the regular Max Scherzer we've, we've grown used to seeing. Um and then yeah, the Astros in Game Four, they go on and almost just match that uh, yep. offensive success. Actually, outdo their offensive success in terms of run production. They score ten runs instead of eight, and they had a twenty-one percent barrel rate, an 
and they went eight for 16 with runners in scoring position and with a 50% sweet spot rate with runners in scoring position. So, you know, it was pretty understandable of how they went eight for 16. It wasn't just a lot of ground balls through the hole. It was a lot of line drives, a lot of hard line drives. And, uh, you know, it worked out really well for the Astros. And that was kind of, that, that was kind of the difference maker with the Astros when they won and when they lost. When they won, they were doing great with runners in scoring position. When they lost, they were doing horribly. And I think that can go for a lot of teams, but it was really poignant with the Astros because I believe they hit 429 in wins with runners in scoring position in this series and like 143 in losses with runners in scoring position in this series. So it just goes to show like how much situational hitting matters in, in these types of series. Yeah, no, it absolutely does. Um, you know, these games are probably going to be forgotten in time eventually, but you know, they set up for a beautiful game five uh, with a two to two series. Yeah, that was, that was a pretty unbelievable game. I mean, it's, it's, it's every, everything that you would want from a postseason game happened. Like it was, it already had the intensity of it being uh, uh, tied at two, the series tied at two, essentially making it a best of three series, um, yeah. having it be the last one at globe life field, which kind of put a little bit of extra pressure on the Rangers, but e- even though it worked in reverse this time, but yeah, they, they, you know, Rangers get out to a four, two lead after an epic Adolis Garcia home run. Uh, you know, not the, not the last time we'll be talking about one of those, but no. it, they go up four to two. Um, there's a bench clearing. And then later in the top of the ninth, there's a, three run home run to make it five to four. It, it kind of, it, it showed that the playoffs were a little bit different now than, than there, they were before. There's been a lot of discourse this postseason about, you know, when is the appropriate time to take your starting pitcher out? Uh, because there's the whole third time through the lineup thing. There's, uh, you know, you know, treating every game like it's game seven uh, and, you know, doing everything you can to win as whenever you can. And, People seem to not really talk about when the narrative for taking a pitcher out earlier goes right. And this is the, this was an instance where I thought Justin Verlander was left in the game a little bit too long um, because uh, he was so going into the fifth inning, uh, you know, he had already given up, you know, he had, he had a, a lead, he had a two to one lead, but uh, you know, he gave up a double to Corey Seager, a single to Evan Carter uh, to face Adolis for the third time. And I mean, you know, you're up by one. The tying run is in is uh, in scoring position, uh, or is at third rather. The tying run is at third. Uh, the best hitter on the team, or one of the best hitters on the team, is coming up. It, that would be that would make sense as to when that's when you go to the bullpen. But they let him face Adolis Garcia. Um, he hit that three run home run, and then they kept him in for two more batters, where he allowed a single to Josh Young. Um, I think, I mean, I'll get a lot into this later, but this was not a very well-managed series by the Astros. Uh, and that's certainly a situation you can point to and say, hey, if this went differently, I mean, not that, not that it really mattered in this game because they won anyway, but, you know, you could, you know, you could argue that this game created some momentum for the Rangers. Uh, you know, it, 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 it unleashed a, a different version of Adolis Garcia, um, you can say whatever you want about what effect this series had on the Rangers going forward, but and it's hard to tell. But you know, one of the clear mismanagement moments here was was leaving Justin Verlander in. Uh yeah, no, it, it's I think most I think a lot of the managers in 
these playoffs probably would have taken Verlander out. Maybe there's a little bit of a um... maybe there's a little bit of a difference because it's Justin Verlander. If that was Brandon Fodd, he's out of there. Yeah, I, not, I was not even not even if not even because it's Tori Lovello and not Dusty Baker. I think that's just a common thing that you do. Yeah, like, yeah, that's I was I was literally about to say that. Like, you know, I think having you know the just the resume of of Justin Verlander and, it, and not even considering you know the current day stuff or current day success against you know whatever hitters he's facing you know you you look at you look at his resume his resume in in a lot of big games you know sometimes it's it's hit or miss with him but nonetheless like it's there's a little bit more of a you know uh, of a significance attached to taking out Justin Verlander in that situation as opposed to you know, uh, a lesser known, a lesser name guy. And yeah, so, you know, Verlander stays in there and Garcia was the number four hitter in the lineup. So, I mean, this was his 22nd batter that he's facing that, that night. And yeah, he had, he'd allowed a, a 109.7 mile per hour barrel to uh, Corey Seager. He allowed a single to Evan Carter with a, you know, a 370 expected batting average, like, you know, not expected to be a hit, but over a third of the time it is a hit. And yeah, I mean, and along with that, I think a good point to to make is they had won the previous game 10 to three and did not use a lot of their um, key bullpen guys. They could have brought yep. Naris out earlier. They could have brought Abreu out earlier. You know, they, they didn't use Presley before. So he was available for probably multiple innings that day, especially considering there was a day off the next day. So yeah, I think there's definitely some, um some justification for some criticism there because yeah it's it's Justin Verlander but it's not the Justin Verlander of even last year or you know Justin Verlander of 2019 who's striking out like 12 guys per nine it's not that same dominant guy so you know I think you'd rather have someone who you know who who you have a little bit more confidence you know keeping the situation to a minimum yeah um, so the score, so that Adolis Garcia home run obviously made it four to two. It stayed that way for a while, and then in the eighth inning, still four to two. Um, this is where the Brian Abreu hit by pitch controversy starts. So I believe there was already a runner on when it happened. I believe Evan Carter reached, and then to lead off the inning, and then, um, and that's when it happened. When first pitch after the after the Adolis home run, he gets drilled on the back. Um, he starts yelling at Martin Maldonado. Does he doesn't even acknowledge Brian Abreu, which I I don't I don't think you see that one very often. No uh, bench bench is clear. Uh, Adolis was ejected. Uh, Maldonado was ejected. Abreu was ejected. Dusty Baker got ejected as well. Um, so I mean I think we should just talk about how this was not intentional. I don't care what anyone says. Yeah, right. Because I... so, like the game is still within reach. It's for I mean, as we saw, obviously, right? Um, there, yeah. There's no reason to hit Adolis there, and I'm sure Abreu knows that. And obviously, he said after the game, he he, it wasn't intentional. But like, also, obviously, it would be weird if he said he did hit him intentionally. Um, True. Yeah, but it just it doesn't make any sense why he would have. I know that he did everything possible to make it look intentional. It was the very first pitch. It was a fastball. It hit him on the back. Uh, he did everything possible to make it look like it was intentional. Um, but I think we can pretty comfortably agree on this show that it just was a ball that got away at a very unfortunate time. 
Yeah, and it's not like uh, you know, a Bray is a pretty nasty pitcher, but he's not known for you know pinpoint control necessarily. Um, you know, I think he only had one hit batsman all year. Yeah, but I imagine he had, you know, some walks to his name, unless I'm wrong about that. Um, which can... um three point nine this year. Yeah. So, yes. So an above average. Oh, yes. Above average rate. Um, so he's not necessarily known for for that. It's not like, you know, Bailey Ober going out there and and striking him like a guy who consistently knows where the ball is going. But um, but yeah, it it's kind of weird because I didn't I wasn't watching it as it was happening. So when I mm-hmm. like looked at it and saw it on Twitter, I assumed it was like intentional, not considering the context of the situation and how close it was. But yeah, I think it would make more sense to be intentional in like a nine to two ball game. Um, but I don't know. I I think there there was reason there was a slight reason to believe because they had had beef. You know, Garcia and Maldonado had some beef, you know, in the regular season, but just as it pertains to the intensity of that situation, it probably wouldn't have made a lot of sense. No, it wouldn't have made a sense at all. But that happened. Uh and that's set up for an amazing ninth inning where uh Yiner Diaz coming in for Maldonado, who had been ejected, uh hit a single through the hole. John Singleton walked. You heard that right. John Singleton walked to bring up Jose Altuve and uh Jose Leclerc, I didn't I didn't think through a very bad pitch. It was a uh sinker, uh or maybe it was a changeup. It was it was one of those uh pitches that kind of runs in on a batter from the right yeah. side. Uh on the corner of the strike zone, Altuve hit it out to left field. Uh obviously that made it a five to four game. It would hold the Astros would win five four. I mean <laughs> It was a ridiculous comeback, right? I mean, the Astros, you know, like the Rangers felt like they were probably felt like they were on top of the world at that point, right? Like you hit a big home run, your guy gets hit, it's at home. Like you're the ones that are, uh, you know, on the side of like what looks like jealousy or what looks like frustration. And somehow the Astros still come back and win that game. Like that's not something you see very often, right? But, uh, but that set up for it. That was a really fun game. And uh, yeah, I mean, it was... Even though they lost the series, that's got to be one like the second mo- most iconic Altuve postseason hit. Yeah, for sure, and and like, yeah, it would it would change the series. You know, it, it changed the series outlook for sure. Even though it didn't end up going in the Astros' favor, it, it just made it a lot easier for the Astros to potentially clinch, which they didn't. But it made it a lot a lot easier. But yeah, I mean, um, looking at that pitch, it it seemed to be a changeup that that ran in. So I guess you know. I think a lot of uh, you you don't want your changeups typically running in because they are easier to pull and they're and they're at lower velocities. So maybe looking at that, but just based on location, it was it was right on the corner. So still, it was a good piece of hitting by um by Jose Altuve there. But yeah, regarding regarding that moment, I mean that uh, looking at the statistics, it increased the Astros' win probability by fifty five percent, which was pretty crazy. Um, you know, they got a them, pretty big CWPA as well, even like for an LCS game. Yeah, most definitely, and and uh, yeah, it it was it was a big moment, and like yeah, if if the Astros went on to win this World Series this year, that would be immortalized in in Astros history. Yeah, obviously, this is just all hypothetical now because they lost, but 
Yeah, I mean, it's very funny that some of the best games we've gotten this postseason have been from teams that got eliminated in that round. This Astros game is number one for that. The thing that I said after this game was that felt like the first game of the entire postseason that was up there with uh, with like any of the big WBC games from this year. Um. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. And one thing I also want to mention was like when I saw that that happened, that's when I started believing even more in like the the Astros postseason magic. I was like, that's why that's why I picked them. They always seem yeah. to find a way. It's just they yeah. always find a way to come through in that big moment. And, you know, ended up being a little bit wrong on that. But like, yeah, I mean, they just it seemed at that time like, yeah, this they just seemed to seem to come through in the big moments, veteran led team uh and just always find a way to win but yeah ultimately i mean came up just a game short um which will you know we'll get into game six game six and seven later uh do you have anything more on game five yeah so the altuve home run had a cwpa of 13 percent uh oh. which i'm i want to see how uh like in an lcs game you know how uh how highly that ranks all time yeah, because and for those, the LCS is obviously now where you get the big CWPAs. Um, and that, and it ranks 20th, 20th all time in LCS games. Yeah, that's wild. And for and those it was the most C, CWPA is um, it's so him having a thirteen percent CWPA means he can he increased the Astros' odds of winning the World Series by thirteen percent with that home run. And it was the most CWPA on a single. Uh, on a single moment since 2009 in the in the in an LCS game, and it was the Jimmy Rollins walk off double against Jonathan Broxton. Uh, if weirdly that moment gets so forgotten in time, but it was Game Four uh, of that series, and Jimmy Rollins hit a walk off two run double, uh, I believe with two outs in the bottom of the ninth against Jonathan Broxton. Uh, and that one did it put the Phillies up three to one in the series or two to two? It put them up three to one. And I'd assume the Phillies were down during that at bat. Yes. Yep. Yeah. And there, yeah, there was there was two outs. There was, uh, yeah, it would have been it would have gone down to two to two, instead it was three to one. Yeah. And that that, that one had a uh, CWPA of, uh, sixteen. The highest all time is the uh the of course the Francisco Cabrera Sid Breen, uh. Safe. You know, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That yeah. one in nineteen ninety two. 36.84 percent the next highest is 22 percent that's crazy that's funny that's funny yeah pretty cool pretty cool there um but yeah ultimately the series goes back to houston where it started and where the final two games would end up being played Astros had a shot to clinch in game six but um in a in as you mentioned one of the most competitive 92 games ever uh yeah the the rangers take uh take the victory in that one uh, behind some good starting pitching from Nathan Eovaldi, um, who didn't have necessarily the strikeouts, but had the soft contact to uh, keep the Astros at bay. Uh, he went six and a third innings pitched, allowed two runs and a 78.9 mile per hour average exit velocity against. And for context, out of 400 playoff outings with 80 plus pitches thrown since 2015, Eovaldi's average exit velocity against was the fifth lowest in a postseason start. Um, fifth lowest out of 400 puts him at, you know, pretty much in that top one percent of softest contact against uh, a long, 
a longer playoff start. So, you know, he came through, you know, he, he has had nothing but good playoff performances so far in these, uh, yep. in these playoffs. So just keeps doing what he's doing. And, and then, um, you know, the Rangers seem to come up in, in pretty good, in pretty big situations as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, the Rangers, uh, they've just kind of found a way. I mean, I didn't, neither of us had them winning a game in these playoffs because we had them getting swept by Tampa. And that was like, yeah. what I thought was my safest pick. Um, I Me was too. stunned to see what happened there. And they've just, you know, if they can, I mean, I think if they can beat the Astros, I know that this was, you know, by record a down year for them, but I think they can beat anyone. And I mean, they have the 84 win Diamondbacks standing in their way, but we'll get to them later, obviously. Um, but yeah, what a what a job they did because the thing that I thought coming out of Game Five was like, man, this is just another. This is what the Rangers do, right? Like they don't lose normally in the playoffs. They lose in the most traumatizing ways possible. You look at 2011 goes without saying, right? They were one strike away from winning the World Series twice. They lose Game Six. They go on to lose Game Seven. Um, there was the uh. 2015 right they go up two nothing in the series against toronto they lose both games at home go back to toronto make three consecutive errors on the seventh after going up three to two and then give up the home run to batista which became like what their franchise was most known for for a while 2016 they get the number one seed in the american league then get swept and also lose they have their season end in a walk-off like that's tough and then this i thought this was just going to be another one i thought this was going to be another moment in rangers history where they lose the most gut-wrenching game in a season that would that was going to become a what-if, um, and they turned it around. Yeah, yeah, it was it was pretty huge. That's why you know you have to feel happy for that for that fan base for sure. Um, yeah, like uh, they they came through uh, when it when it mattered most. Adolis Garcia came through when it mattered most. Obviously, uh, in that in that game six, you know they were up four two. Wasn't the safest lead and garcia comes up with the bases loaded in what was it the eighth or ninth inning um in the in game two it was the ninth inning or game six yeah ninth they inning. Get that grand slam grand slam pretty much puts the game away um and yeah the rangers win nine to two astros by the way went one for eight with runners in scoring position in that game with a 75.5 mile per hour average exit velocity with runners in scoring position league average is around 88 miles per hour um and yeah, and then game seven happens and the Rangers get right on Christian Javier. Yeah, I mean, it, it was not even people forget he pitched in that game, probably like yeah. he, he recorded one out, uh, you know, he and it was a pop and it was a pop out. I think it wasn't even like that competitive, um, which naturally, I guess. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Christian, yeah. A hundred percent of his outs were pop ups in game seven. That's that's what he does. <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah. If that's if I'm remembering correctly. Um, but yeah, I mean, it wasn't even it wasn't even remotely competitive out there for him. Yeah, he goes one third of an inning, allows three runs, one walk, no strikeouts, uh, has a ninety five point zero mile per hour average exit velocity against, meaning that uh, average average ball average batted ball against Christian Javier that night was a hard hit ball. Um, you know, allowed a a huge home run to Corey Seager to start everything. Um, and then it, you know, kept tumbling down. Maybe had a little bit of um a little bit of unfortunate luck. That's just gonna happen when you give up that many runs, but still, you know, was unable to strike out any any of the six batters that he faced. Um, 
and not get the best uh the best contact against him allowed some hard contact and uh and yeah the rangers just out of the gate were amazing um and uh, that's especially true with Adolis Garcia. And, you know, I, I, there were so many stat graphics on it and people were talking about it so much, but I figured we'd talk about it as well. Uh, Adolis Garcia's final six at bats or final six plate appearances in general um, consisted of him going five for six with three home runs and nine RBI, uh, you know, pretty much plowing the yeah, way toward what a, you know, that ALCS MVP. What a way to p- play the villain role going on the road, you know, after after that loss. It's like, you know, Adolis came out looking bad after that game five. You know, he's the one that got in Maldonado's face after the hit by pitch. He was the one that lost the game. Uh, it, it looked, you know, it looked like he was the one that kind of looked bad. And he came out to say on top would be would be a, an understatement. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah, it was it was a. It was such a, like, rarely do you ever see in baseball, like, outside of a pitcher, like, you rarely do you ever see in baseball the position player takeover where it feels like one guy takes over a game. And I know, you know, the Rangers scored 11 runs and Garcia was only responsible for a a certain portion of them. But still, it really felt like it was, like, anytime Garcia was up at, at the plate, it was like, I have to watch this because he could absolutely change the game right here. And he, and he, that's ultimately what he did in those last six at bats. Yeah. I mean, he, he single-handedly took over, obviously he won NL or ALCS MVP and there was no doubt about it. Yeah. Although there was a pretty good um competitor. I think people maybe forgot a little bit about, but Jordan Montgomery was yeah. pretty stellar. Um, He had two starts and he had a relief appearance over in that game seven Um, ultimately went, 14 innings with a 1-2-9 ERA and I believe a 3-4 FIP. So, you know, a little bit of luck on his side. However, still a really, really good performance with that 1-2-9 ERA. And that 3-4 FIP is still very, very good in those 14 innings. Uh, really put the Rangers in the best situations possible, even though one of the games he started was a loss. That wasn't to the fault of uh, of Jordan Montgomery necessarily. That was, you know, bullpen bullpen work and and basically that ninth inning was where that game was lost um and uh and yeah i mean shut them out in the in the first game and shut them out in his in his relief appearance in two and a third innings pitched um and you know the astros offense it didn't lose them the it didn't lose them the game you know they lost 11 to 4 obviously but they did continue to struggle with runners in scoring position they went two for 14 with runners in scoring position in game seven with a 17% sweet spot rate in those situations. Um, but ultimately it was really about Adolis Garcia and that Rangers offense. It seems. Yeah. Um, uh, I would like to go back to game six for a quick moment because this was in my mind, I thought not when the series was over, but when I thought, okay, the Astros are going to have to really play very well in game seven to get over this hump. Uh, it was the eighth inning of game six. And at the bottom of the eighth, the Astros were down five to two at the time. And right, that's what it was. It was five to two. Yeah, because the Rangers yeah. had scored. Um so to start off the eighth, uh Alex Bregman walked, Jordan struck out, Jose Abreu singled, Kyle Tucker walked. So it brings up bases loaded and one out. And Mauricio Dubon came up, lined out to the shortstop. It was tough. He didn't hit it super hard, but you know, it was just in the wrong place. And then Jeremy Payne's spot comes up, and Dusty Baker 
besides the pinch hit, the one lefty left on his bench to face Jose Leclerc, the right-hander, John Singleton, who put together a competitive at-bat, but struck out. And this was one of the worst managerial decisions I've ever seen. It was an extremely high-leverage situation. It was a moment that could have flipped the entire series on its head. A single ties the... Er, a ball in the gap might tie the game there with, uh, with Tucker on first, right? Or at least, it, you know, or at least, the very least, it brings up... Uh, what did it brought up? Uh, I would have brought up the nine-hitter, which was... Who was the nine-hitter at the time? It was, yeah, you know, it would have been uh, Maldonado, but they pinch hit Yonder Diaz. Anyway, what I'm saying is, Dusty Baker had four options to go with in this situation. He could have kept Jeremy Pena in, he could have pinch hit John Singleton, which he did, which was the lefty-righty matchup, or he could have pinch hit Yonder Diaz, or he could have pinch hit uh, Chaz McCormick, who had like an 830 OPS this year. Now, I want to go through everyone's OPS against left-handers in that uh, this year or against right-handers this year uh you know during their time with the Astros Yiner Diaz had a 931 uh, OPS against left-handers the only guys on the team with a higher OPS this year were Jordan Alvarez and Jose Altuve um those are your best bats period and Yiner Diaz was right behind Chaz McCormick had a 769 which is decent it's a little above average um you know not amazing but you know if you really want to match up favorability, you know, that's not the worst guy to have up. Jeremy Pena had a 653, you know, an 82 weighted runs created plus a 239 average. I can kind of understand why maybe you want to pinch hit for him, even though he's the reigning World Series and ALCS MVP. And there's John Singleton with a 455 OPS against right-handers. And this is just in his time with the Astros. If you loop in his time with the Brewers, it's actually worse. Uh, he hit... He hit 150, had a 255 OBP, a 200 slugging against right-handers. And I get it, he's a lefty, you want the matchup, but, like, are you even watching the games at that point? Uh, just to give you an idea, his OPS against lefties in his time with the Astros this year uh, was... Oh, come on, I gotta reset the filter. Uh, it was over 900 on the season, uh, but with the Astros, it was a slightly different number. It was 930. Yeah, a 930 OPS versus a 455, and he took the 455 OPS. Uh, that just, I mean, obviously, look, even if you pinch hit Yonder Diaz, there was two outs. He could have flown out, and it would have made a difference. But I don't know if I've seen a worse decision in a while. Yeah, just whether it be, you know, an analytically looking at and not it's not using super bit it's not using super uh advanced metrics it's just ops you and, could even uh, say but you could even look at batting average yeah yeah like so, he, hit, he hit 150 against righties and he hit 273 against lefties so whether it be analytically or the fact of like just in general if you just if you're just if you've just been paying any bit of attention to the astros this year you're like who do you want up in the big spot do you want john singleton or one of these three other guys i think i think the unanimous decision or the overwhelming decision from is, is, people who've been paying attention to the astros is one of the other three guys and probably yeah. chas mccormick favorably yeah i mean i get not pinch hitting diaz there because maybe you want to pinch hit him for maldonado uh and you know have him take over at the catcher spot but even still like yeah 
He was pinch hitting for okay. He was pitching for Jeremy Pena, who was a shortstop. Oh yeah, also they had like Trey Kessinger, but like I understand now I wanted to pinch hit him because he was a defensive replacement for for Singleton. Here's what I would have done. I would have yeah. I mean maybe you pinch hit McCormick because you obviously and then if and let's say he gets out, then you put Kessinger at short because they didn't have any other shortstops on the bench to replace Pena. Um, so that's fine. If you want to, you know, pinch hit someone just to have them, you know, just to burn them for that at bat, I get maybe that's why you don't go Diaz because you'd want him to pinch hit for Maldonado if the inning continues so he can take over a catcher. Um, and you don't want to pinch hit Kessinger because, you know, you need someone to go to shortstop. I get it. Um, and then you're just burning more guys. But it made no sense to go John Singleton there. That was a pretty drastically bad decision that I think... Uh, you know, obviously it's all hypothetical. This was a bases loaded two out situation. All it took was like a fly out of ground out of strikeout, whatever, and it doesn't matter. But I mean, you can't say that Dusty put him his team in a better position to win there. You just can't. Yeah, like and and John Singleton also doesn't play shortstop, so there's yeah. not even that built in um, you know, justification there. Yeah, it um you know, there were definitely some questionable things. I think it, it was something you talked about, um prior to the postseason even starting like talking about the possibility of the Astros even not making the playoffs because I mean they were pretty much two games away from from that happening um and and the fact of like questioning maybe some of the decisions that Dusty Baker's made in the regular season and you know managers are they do their job in the regular season but people really only pay attention or at least from a national landscape people only pay attention in the postseason and that was a that was kind of an error that was that was highlighted there so I think a lot of a lot of what will be talked about is like, oh, the Astros aren't back. You know, it would have been three years in a row. They didn't get back this time. Had a little bit of a, you know, it's a bit of a step back for the organization, obviously, considering like last year was 106 wins and, you know, a World Series uh, championship. And and this year was 90 wins, you know, bar- barely cracking the playoffs, having some postseason success, but ultimately falling a game short of the World Series. But I think what needs to be mostly talked about is the journey of the Texas Rangers. I mean, as you mentioned prior, like we did not have them winning a game against the Tampa Bay Rays. We didn't really give them a shot against the Tampa Bay Rays, considering that whole situation, how the Rangers season ended and, and how the Rays were were going at the time. But the Rangers have really defied the odds, uh, you know, done really well in the postseason. And probably I think most people would agree have gotten past their biggest challenge. Yeah, I mean, I going into these playoffs, I saw the, the 2023 Rangers as the 2022 Mets, a team that, you know, led the division the entire year, looked like a lot of fun, uh, and then lost the division on, you know, the last day of the season. And I know that, like, the Mets story is very different because, like, they just, like, they still played well the whole season. The Braves just went on an, a ridiculous tear versus the Rangers playing kind of mediocre baseball to the last four months of the season. Uh, but, you know, I saw the similarities in those teams where, you know, like the Rangers are, you know, going from Seattle to Tampa when they could be going back home for a week-long break before they face the winner of Astros Rays. Um, and obviously, instead, they lost three out of four to the Mariners, uh, you know, in that last series on the road. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I... I really didn't know what to think with the Rangers. I didn't love 
Uh, I thought there was a bad taste in their mouth. I thought with the inexperience combined with all that, that uh, Tampa Bay was going to kind of just like roll over them completely. And I couldn't be more wrong. Yeah. Yeah. No, me neither. I, I really thought just like from a energy standpoint, they just weren't going to be there. Um, I thought I didn't like, I didn't like Nathan Uvaldi going into the playoffs. Like he out of people, people forget in, in September out of all the pitchers with 20 plus innings pitch, Nathan Uvaldi had the worst ERA of those pitchers. And, you know, he went into game two with that, with, you know, riding that lack of momentum and did pretty much the opposite has, has been pitching pretty much the opposite for the entire playoffs and been, you know, one of the best pitchers in these playoffs, arguably the best, if not for maybe Zach Wheeler, but yeah, I mean, um, they've completely turned around. They, you know, want, they won four straight road games to start the playoffs. They've won all their, yeah, they've still won all their road games, which is unbelievable. Uh, I mean, I wonder if that'll keep going into, into the world series, but it's, it's a true like underdog story when you didn't really expect there to be an underdog story. Yeah, I mean, I I props to the Rangers. I mean, they you know they beat the ninety nine. They had a long tough road to get to this point. They beat the ninety nine win Rays, the one hundred win, the hundred one win Orioles, and then they and I know that you know record wise the Astros weren't as good, but that's the that's the Astros. Like you look at the teams that beat the Astros in the playoffs over these years, and it's it's some strong teams, right? The twenty twenty Rays, the twenty twenty one Braves. Uh, the 2018 Red Sox, the 2019 Nationals, uh, like it takes a lot to take down this team, um, and the Rangers have done it. Yeah, yeah, for you know, sure. Even you know, no matter what the record says, I know that you might look at a 90 win Astros team and be like, oh wow, that's that's a down year for them. Uh, it's still the same lineup. You know, I know that the pitching staff was a little bit different this year, and Framber Valdez just didn't have it in this series, but. I mean, that's it's the Astros. Like you gotta, you gotta accept it for what it is. Like it's the same team, no matter the record. Yeah, every every team that's beat the Astros in the playoffs since 2015, um, either beat them in the World Series or went on to win the World Series, except for the 2020 Rays. Um, those, you know, those were the only that was the only team that didn't do that, and they they were two games away from beating the Dodgers. But yeah, I mean, the Astros have made seven straight. ALCS is for a for a reason and and you know there's also that element of of you know intra-divisional rivals the fact that the Astros beat them you know nine 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 times in 13 games um in their regular season matchups like that was kind of against them but um overcame the odds and it's kind of interesting to see them going in as probably a, a overwhelming f- favorite against these Diamondbacks which is pretty funny I mean they're going to be hosting a series now which is crazy considering they were the five seed. Um, but I mean, yeah, anything more before we get into the the Phillies Diamondbacks? No, I'm excited to see what this Rangers game has in store for the World Series. I'm excited to see, you know, Corey Seager back in the World Series at Globe Life Field. Uh, obviously, that's where he won his World Series MVP and his NLCS MVP as well. Um, it's going to be very cool to see him. We'll get to, you know, we'll get to people that I'm excited for later because that's a segment we have, but yeah, let's talk about these these snakes. Yes, these snakes who, um, despite being down 2-0 in this uh, NLCS, went on to beat the Phillies, uh, win two games, two back-to-back games at Citizens Bank Park. Um, but it all starts 
back in game three, which is where we let last left off. You know, we last time we hopped on these microphones, uh, the Diamondbacks were down 2-0 in this series, but uh, they win game three by the score of two to one. It's a it's a pitcher's duel between Brandon Fodd and Ranger Suarez. Not the pitcher's duel you'd expect in this series, but nonetheless, that was what happened. Uh, Fodd went five and two-thirds innings pitched, uh, no runs allowed, no walks, nine strikeouts, a 47% whiff rate, and 44% chase rate. Ranger Suarez, on the other end, went five and a third scoreless, one walk, seven strikeouts, 35% whiff rate, and 39% called strike and whiff rate, over 11% above average. Um, and, you know, luckily for uh, Lavulo and all the, you know, people who kind of follow trends here, taking out Fod, uh, yeah, early in or quote unquote early in the game did not uh, go against the Diamondbacks, and you know they get out of that inning that uh, get out of that inning that Fod didn't finish, and they go on to win the game. So. This is, you know, this is a modern postseason pitchers duel, right? Both both guys getting taken out in the sixth, but yeah. uh, but there is so first of all, let's talk about the decision to take out Fod. He was he faced exactly eighteen batters. Uh, he got taken out with no one on base, uh, with two outs in the fifth. I don't think there's anyone on base. Uh, although it could be wrong, but Kyle Schwarber was coming up, and Kyle Schwarber people people don't remember this. But Kyle Schwarber earlier in his last at bat hit a mammoth foul ball. Like it was a ball that had the distance to go out. Uh, he hooked it, you know, a little too much down the right. It was never gonna go out. Like there was never a question of if it was fair or not. But he hit it. You know, he he got a good piece of a hanging curveball, um, and he crushed the ball. Yeah, strikeout fly out in the sixth. So Andrew Salfrank came in to walk Kyle Schwarber, unfortunately. Uh, and then Trey Turner hit into a 107 mile per hour out. But for that time, like the entire course, like the entirety of the discourse was in the hands of Andrew Salfrank because Twitter would have exploded the way that they did in 2020 if uh, if the Diamondbacks gave up a run there in the sixth. And luckily, Salfrank uh, shut it down there. But he had no idea the pressure that was on him in that moment to, to keep like the state of his manager like alive basically yeah exactly exactly um and yeah that's the it's the tough thing about it's the tough thing about about talking about these decisions is you know when you take the guy out you automatically are in what if mode because you don't know what would have happened obviously because he's not out there and i mean there are 75 plate appearances in the regular season that supported the claim that supported the decision of fod coming out uh yeah. it was what an 1193 ops or something like that against 1192 1192 yeah. ops against him third time through the lineup and i know you know he had different stuff that day uh you know fod in game three had a 47 percent whiff rate against that was not the norm for him he seemed to be doing really well but i think it's i think there's just a bit more logic in going based off of these 75 plate appearances that Tor Lavulo saw with his own eyes um, when Fod went through that third time through the lineup, as opposed to going based off of feel against a really, really dangerous lineup who could just have the wheels fall, you know, have the wheels going immediately, along with the fact that it's a tie game at that point. It's not like yep. the 
Diamondbacks have any cushion. They have only the game to lose at that point. So you, yeah, you you go with the bullpen that's been you know doing pretty well up to that point. Yeah, exactly. And the bullpen we'll get to later, but uh, yeah, I mean they to their credit they shut it down. I know that Solfring did give up a run in the seventh, but uh, you know, I mean Fod would have been out at that point anyway. I don't think anyone realistically yeah. saw him pitching into the seventh. Yeah, no. I think, it, I think people. I think people are more mad that they took him out like mid inning with two outs and nobody on. Yeah, um, he was at seven. He was at seventy pitches, but I mean, it proved to be the right decision. Yeah, and and it's three and a third, one, one, one run allowed. That is a successful. That's that's a successful, you know, outing from the bullpen, if you could call it one singular outing. But like, just thinking about, you know, if I'm if I'm Tori Lavulo, just just thinking about it objectively, you take out, and I know it's hard to take out what Fod did that day. Um, but do you want Brandon Fod, who has an eleven ninety three OPS, third time through the lineup, a thirty four percent fly ball rate against against facing, lineup. facing a lefty, um, who hits who does really well on fly balls, hits a lot of barrels, or do you want Saul Frank, who Schwarber is facing for the first time that day, who comes from the left side, Schwarber, I imagine, does much worse against lefties, and spins 74% ground balls in the regular season and was spinning ground balls for the most part in the uh, in, in the postseason. I think it's, you know, just logically speaking, it's it's pretty it's a pretty sound decision there to go with Andrew Saul Frank. He, he ended up walking the guy, but I feel like you know, six times, you know, seven times out of 10, he's preventing Schwarber from getting on base. And most of the time, uh, you know, overwhelmingly, most of the time, more than average, preventing that home run that would be a big difference maker in that, in that tight ball game. Yeah. Um, you, you'd rather, t- you, you, you don't want the fly ball pitcher against Kyle Schwarber. Typically you want the lefty ground ball pitcher. Yeah. And I know it didn't Schwarber. work out. Like he just happened to, you know, not throw strikes, but obviously he got Trey Turner and yeah. The state of the discourse would have been a lot different if the Phillies had score there, but thank God. And I, I tweeted this, and, uh, you know, for as much as people rag on Kevin Cash for taking Blake Snell out in 2020, it couldn't have been that bad a decision if a lot of the managers in this postseason and postseasons past have done the same thing, and he was kind of the first guy to really do that. Like, if it was such a bad decision, why do other managers keep doing it? Yeah, exactly, and, and some of the... You know, some of the quality, like, I guess, comebacks have sparked off of guys being in there too long, most notably with, or maybe not guys being in there too long, but guys being in their third time through the lineup. Granted, it was Wheeler and Verlander, but Wheeler in, in game two against, uh, yeah, Wheeler in game two against the Braves and Verlander in game five against the Rangers. Like, those were two, you know, big moments that happened and sparked some you know rallies you know late into a late into a, a postseason start and there haven't really been that many instances where a bullpen just fell apart after t- after a guy took a after a manager took a, a guy out too early or yeah. quote-unquote too early like yeah. i don't think that's really happened at all this postseason no i mean knock on wood but yeah yeah i mean there's been so many i well, i mean i guess the barrios one but that was also like absurd yeah, and even then, what was it? Five innings and two runs allowed from that bullpen. Yeah, 
And one of the runs was, or actually no, five innings, one run, because I think Barrios. One of them was, was a Barrios run. One of them was a Barrios run. Yeah, I still, um, yeah, I mean, that's the one that I think was a little absurd, but other than that, yeah, it's kind of worked every time. Yeah, because yeah, like, that Barrios Phillies, one. The Phillies did it twice with Ranger Suarez, and it were, and you know, I know they lost the game, but like, you know, they gave up, they gave up two runs over nine innings. Yeah, yeah, and the and the reliever that came in immediately after, uh, Ranger Suarez was good. Like it was. It was uh, Orion Kerkering in the seventh that gave up the first run, and then Craig Kibrell in the ninth who gave up the second. Yeah, and you know, with Barrios, like he he'd faced twelve batters, not not eighteen, so it's a little bit more understandable to talk about to put that into the narrative. Um, so yeah, the Diamondbacks win game three. Um, game four was pretty nuts. I didn't really watch. I didn't have the chance to watch most of it live, yeah. um, unfortunately, because you know had to talk about Jaden Seabury and his, his amazing performance for the uh, Louisa County Lions, uh, pushing them to I believe a five and two record. And shout out to Louisa County. I will be there tomorrow uh, for the for, for the yeah. football game again. But uh, on that night, a little bit more notably in the in the scheme of, in the. Uh, grand scale of the of the sports world uh yeah the diamondbacks have a comeback win late game comeback win kind of what was what was what were some of the big moments of this game well the big moments really all came in the eighth inning uh it was at that point it was a four to it was a four to one or wait no it was a four to three phillies lead um and who was pitching for the phillies that gave up all those runs was it uh it was recurring or no it wasn't it was uh gregory soto and then Craig Kimbrell. Yep, Craig Kimbrell was was had a rough day in these two games, but uh, he came in and this this was the Alec Thomas home run game. And uh, I believe after Alec Thomas's home run, there was there was more. Yeah. So in the eighth inning, uh, Loris Gurriel Jr. doubles. It was a it was a rope. It was ninety eight point two miles an hour, um, twenty one degree launch angle. So it was in a gap. Uh, Evan Longoria lined out on a uh, on a ball that went three hundred fifty two feet. So it was kind of just like a line drive right at someone and then Alec Thomas uh took a Kimbrel fastball with movement into the pool. I think it went straight into the pool. Gone in 29 out of 30 ballparks. I'm assuming the one is not gone out of is San Francisco and that's absolutely right. But uh yeah, it was a really impressive piece of hitting by Alec Thomas. Uh not the greatest pitch, but you know, he's not a guy that you're automatically thinking home run threat every time and he has three this postseason, so credit to him. Yeah, and they've come in pretty significant times. Like I think one of them was in the Milwaukee series. Yeah, they've all there's one in each series. Yeah, one in each series. So the, the Dodgers one was kind of meaningless. It was in the in game one where they won like eleven to two. <laughs> right, right. Um, yeah. So, um, yeah, it it was the yeah it was the Diamondbacks like ultimately coming. You know, just getting the getting the clutch hits and and just i mean that was two consecutive games in which they won uh by one run and i think something we'll get into later is the diamondbacks were outscored heavily in the series they just happened to win the key moments and end up on top more than the phillies did ultimately doesn't help doesn't help that there was a 10 nothing phillies game in there true doesn't <laughs> that doesn't help something but... i learned by the way uh baseball reference tweeted this stat but there have been four uh, postseason games in MLB history where a team won ten to nothing. All four of those teams went on to lose the series. 
Wow. So there's the Phillies, obviously, in this one. There was the uh, the Yankees one. Uh, well, I mean, this one's pretty predictable, but the 1960 World Series, <laughs> obviously. Uh, the Yankees, I think they won like 10 nothing, 20 nothing, 30 nothing, and still <laughs> lost. Yeah. Um, there was uh, the Brewers beating the Cardinals in game one of the 1982 World Series. They went on to lose that one in seven. And then, uh, actually, all four of these were lost in seven, now that I think about it. And then the Royals won game six against the Giants 10 to nothing in 2014 in the World Series. Yeah. So you got to, you got to avoid that. And yeah, you got listen. You you if you if you're up ten to nothing in the ninth, you gotta let them. You gotta let them have a one. Yeah. Or you know, if you're up nine nothing and there's the tenth run in scoring position, you gotta you gotta uh, intentionally strike out. Yeah, no doubt about it. I think, you know, we talk about analytics. We talk about you know being able to forecast your own outcomes, and and that's that's one you know analytics one on one. You you never win the ten nothing ball game in a postseason yeah, series. I mean, we all know this. We've been saying this since 1960. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Happened. Like if you're going to like it's it's hard to outscore your opponent in a series 55 to 27 and end up winning that series. It's hard to do that. <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, histor- historically speaking, of course. Historically. Um <laughs> back to the Alec Thomas home run. Um that pitch was technically, I think I don't know if uh if Statcast would say it, but it looks on the game day zone looks like it was out of the zone too like it didn't it was... look it so it kind of moved out i think like it was a fastball with movements uh but yeah. it looked yeah it was it was on nonetheless it was like around the outside corner and alec thomas pulled it into the chase field right center field and out of the stadium which is really really impressive it takes a lot of power to be able to do that um you know no no matter who's on the mound uh and yeah that was a huge moment Ultimately, they go up on top six to five. Paul Seawold comes into pitch and closes that out. Um, and game five, uh, it's a it's a it's a Wheeler Deal Fest once again. Uh, seven innings, five, one run. Yeah. Yes, game five seven, is the one I wasn't able to watch. Yeah, you didn't really you didn't really miss any, anything really. Yeah, I did uh, not. <laughs> I could not watch a single pitch of that game. But from what it looked like, I was not. Yeah, miss. I was like, okay, Wheeler's dealing. Obviously, Diamondbacks are not doing much. Yeah, it doesn't ultimately doesn't. Sure, Schwarber and Harper both hit moon bombs. That's pretty cool. Yeah, do, ultimately doesn't add much to the narrative of the series. You know, Wheeler goes seven innings, one run, one walk, eight strikeouts, thirty five percent whiff rate, thirty five percent called strike and whiff rate, and forty one percent chase rate. Uh, Zach Gallen, uh, unable to finish batters off, goes six innings, four runs, two walks, one one strikeout. Uh, one strikeout is very unusual for Zach Gallen. Two home runs allowed and three barrels allowed. And yeah, the Phillies go on top six and, and win six to one. It was never really, you know, that much in question once the Phillies started scoring runs and just how well you saw Zach Wheeler pitching. And ultimately it's not a game there's really much to talk about. So we'll just move on to game six, um, where Merrill Kelly just really recovers. Uh this was really surprising to me. Um, any any starting pitching, any any starting pitcher doing well at Citizens Bank Park on the road. Is that's going to surprise me, and yeah. that's exactly what happened with Merrill Kelly because he had a horrible start uh, in Game Two where he allowed five barrels. It was the most barrels allowed by by a pitcher in a game in the Statcast era or in, in a playoff game in the Statcast era. But Merrill Kelly went out uh, in Game Six and went five innings, allowed one run, three walks, 
and eight strikeouts. Uh, yeah, that that's that was the big one for me because Merrill Kelly's not a guy that's no. gonna blow you away with his velocity. Uh, so the fact that he got eight strikeouts is, I think, pretty impressive. Yeah, and he has generally like an average or slightly below average strikeout rate as it is. Like he's a pretty good pitcher, but it's not because of his ability to finish hitters off. But that's what he did against the Phillies. Um, helped him out tremendously, and he only ended up allowing one run. Meanwhile, on the other side, uh, Aaron Nola had a rough outing. I believe allowed four runs, uh, and a lot of that was because of the contact he was allowing. He allowed five batted balls in the sweet spot zone at 105-plus mile-per-hour exit velocities. Uh, That means, you know, extremely, extremely hard hit. 95 miles per hour is the hard hit threshold, so 105 is extremely hard hit, and also those were either you know, solid line drives or low fly balls that are, you know, likely going to find a gap or leave the stadium. And I think one of them or two of them did leave the stadium. And those are the most allowed such batted balls in a playoff game in the stack cast era. And, you know, I know I'm throwing a bunch of numbers out, but on those batted balls, hitters hit, uh, hitters went four for five with two home runs, a triple and a double on those batted balls. So uh, hitters seem to really connect pretty well. I know Nola kind of hanged a couple Put a, put a couple in the middle of the zone that allowed the Diamondbacks to execute on them. And yeah, it was a rough start from Nola and a great start from Kelly, which is kind of the opposite of what we saw in game two. Yeah, I believe this was the game where uh, they hit back-to-back home runs. It was Guriel and then Walker, right? Uh, yeah, I think so. I believe that's what it was. Have to go back to the to the. Oh, no, it was Fam. Fam Guriel, that's what it was. Yeah. Yeah, I know one of them was like a brutal, a brutal hanging curveball or or something of that nature that mm-hmm. um, I think Fam ended up just crushing out of the stadium. Yeah, to start the top of the second, it was Tommy Fam home run and Lourdes Gurriel home run back to back. Pretty nice for them, and yeah, puts them up to nothing. They go on to score another run that inning. Uh, they go on to score another run in the top of the fifth uh to make it four to one and and yeah and be because of how merrill kelly and the diamondbacks were pitching um they the diamondbacks never really let it get close no they never did uh i mean it was it was yeah it was what six to do that game or something like that six to one five to one five one yeah five to one it took me like four times to get the score right but you you knew it was a four-run ball game yeah yeah i did Hmm. um yeah, I mean, it was just not. It it felt so weirdly uncompetitive, the entire time. I mean, the fact that they they took the I think taking the crowd out so early as they did, uh, it really played a big difference going forward because like, like most big crowds in baseball are very reactionary. Like if there's you know if there's someone on base, if there's a rally going, like they'll get up. But if it's if it looks bad, like it's it's a library in there. Like that, I'm not even like, uh. I don't even mean any disrespect to Philadelphia, but that's just how it is. Yeah, because like socially, if you just put yourself in the shoes of someone yeah. at the stadium, you don't want to be the guy that's like, it's top of the seventh, there's no one on, no one out, or no one on, two out. It's like, come on, guys, they need us. Come it's on, like guys. Shut up, they're down four. <laughs> you're the only person in the section that's standing. Yeah, it's socially yeah. awkward, I get it. Yeah, like just from that standpoint, yeah, so it's going to put the citizens bank park in an awkward situation Mm. and yeah i think like that's kind of what 
the Diamondbacks needed to, needed to do is is get out in front first because teams have really failed to do that, and that's a lot of the reason why teams continue continued to lose in Citizens Bank Park in the playoffs up to that point. So getting that early lead and having Kelly maintain that lead, it kind of took the crowd out and made it so that it seemed like, yeah, the Diamondbacks are going to actually win this one. Like it didn't really feel like the Phillies were very much in that game in those late stages, whereas normally that's they're absolutely in that game. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a hundred percent. I mean, obviously it was the first game they had lost at home all playoffs, but it was really even the, I think it was the first game they trailed at home even. Right. Um, they didn't, they definitely didn't trail against the Marlins. Uh, I don't think they trailed again. They definitely didn't trail in games one or two. Um, of the of the NLCS, but I don't think they trailed against the Braves either. Yeah, no, never trailed against the Diamondbacks in the first in the first two games, as you mentioned. Um, yeah, I think it was the first time they trailed in the playoffs, and yeah, it's a it's night and day. It's night and day for sure. And in Game Seven, the Diamondbacks continued and scored first in that one as well, uh, which helped them out tremendously. And that was in the first inning. Had some quality bat-bippery go their way. Uh, I'll, I'll credit that, but um, also the Phillies, they come back, you know, Alec Bohm ties it. The Phillies eventually get on top two to one. And at that point I'm like, okay, looks like the Phillies are kind of in control here, but the Diamondbacks end up coming back much to our, like how surprised were you that the Diamondbacks ended up coming back in that one? And yeah, no, I, I was stunned. Like that's, that's <laughs> not how it, that's not how it happens. It's not how it happens. Only the Astros, or yeah, only only the Astros might be able to do that. But even then, they didn't they didn't take a lead after the Phillies took a lead at Citizens Bank Park. Mm-hmm. No, they, they didn't. You're right. They only won in games where they had the lead first um, at Citizens Bank Park. So, yeah, it just felt like you were going off script there. Yeah, I mean the Phillies. What they scored their run run quickly, but yeah, no, it was it was over. Yeah, it was uh it was two to one. It was two to one Phillies. Then in the top of the fifth, the Diamondbacks answer back pretty much immediately. And yeah, the Diamondbacks answer back pretty much immediately. Emmanuel uh Emmanuel Rivera hits a single. Uh Geraldo Perdomo uh gets a sack bunt down. Gotta love the fundamentals there. <laughs> Half joking. Uh Cattell Marte strikes out, and then Corbin Carroll delivers with a sharp ground ball through the middle. I think it was hit like 109 miles per hour or something like that. Yeah. Uh, pretty much splits the shortstop and second baseman and drives Rivera in. Then Ranger Suarez comes out. Corbin Carroll gets a clutch stolen base. And Gabriel Moreno is the one uh, delivering in the heroic situation once again with a sharp ground ball through the right side. Um, or you could categorize it as a line drive. But all in all, gets to the right side, allows Corbin Carroll to sh- score. They go up three to two. The uh, Diamondbacks bullpen shuts it down. Diamondbacks, yeah. Diamondbacks bullpen way, doesn't, allow, doesn't allow a run. Yeah, I mean, it's so funny that we're at this point now because no one could have seen us being here a month ago. But, you know, Joe Mantiply gets that out to end the fifth. And I'm thinking, okay, Thompson, Saul Frank, Ginkle, and Seawald, and that's it. And that's exactly what happened. But imagine saying those four words, those four names, back to back to back to back in in mid September. Like people are like, "Wait, Ginkle, Kevin Ginkle, Saul Frank, what? Exactly, Thompson, Thompson, that guy from the Rays. Exactly, isn't he, isn't he still on Tampa? No, right. they're, they're all they're an elite bullpen on the Diamondbacks, actually. 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, heading into this postseason, like, I was one of the, like, I, out of all the bullpens in these playoffs, I was, like, maybe the least confident in the Diamondbacks. Maybe the Rangers, ironically enough, were <laughs> I was less confident in. But, yeah, the, the Diamondbacks have a have a 2-9-4 bullpen ERA in these playoffs, which is uh, pretty crazy. And, yeah, it's funny to think about, yeah, it's like, oh, c- come on, you got the Seawald, Ginkle, you know Saul Frank Thompson combination like like we're talking about you know the 2015 Royals here it's like yeah yeah Davis Holland Herrera Hoshaver like you're done (laughs) last year was you know Presley Montero Bray you're done get get out of here whereas this year it's like this crew of kind of like you know it you know in a in a flattering sense to to make it flattering you know a, a bunch of misfits who yeah. kind of found like, found themselves on the Diamondbacks are just out there, just killing it. Yeah, if you ask the average baseball fan how many of those guys they had heard of before a month ago, I bet it's Seawald. You know, if we're talking like guys that like you know like pay attention to every team, it's like Seawald probably a decent amount because he's been the closer over there in Seattle for a while. Mets fans might remember him. Thompson, you know, maybe some guys remember him from being a part of like the Rays team that had the stable. Ginkle, like, you know, if you've followed the Diamondbacks enough, you'd know that he's been there a couple of years. Saul Frank, if you're a Diamondbacks fan, and that's it. Yeah. Saul Frank, <laughs> I found out about in the wildcard series. Yep. When he when he came in and uh, didn't he he got out of like a bases loaded one out jam, right? Yeah, with two with two ground balls. He got two ground balls, yeah. And I was like, wow, that's that's what he does. That's yeah. that's what Andrew Saul Frank is out there doing. Yeah. That's what he did for ten innings this year. Yep. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, it is it is funny to see that. Um, but yeah, it's about it's really about having your bullpen get hot at the right time, and they seem to mm-hmm. be continuing to do that. And they did that against the Phillies. Um, and yeah, as much of a as much of a credit you can have to the Diamondbacks and their pitching in game in game six and seven, you can also talk about the Phillies offense, who you know, like they they this was really painful for Phillies fans. I can definitely tell from experience of just watching your team fail with runners in scoring yeah. position in the playoffs that is an absolute nightmare and that's what happened at citizens bank park on uh on monday and tuesday was in the final two games of the series the phillies went two for 17 with seven strikeouts with runners in scoring position um the seven strikeouts is a real is a real um you know insult to injury because you know you're not putting the ball in play you're decreasing the chance of you getting on base or getting a hit and you're not even getting, you know, that sack fly that could potentially uh, bring someone in or even or you're uh, not, or you're not getting like a ground ball that moves the guy from second to third. Yeah, exactly. Or, you know, <laughs> even a bases loaded, nobody out double play that could score a run. Yep. Um, not even that, but yeah, it, it that's what kind of killed the Phillies. They were able to get some guys on, but were unable to capitalize on, on getting those guys in. Um, and some of that had to do with, uh, some of their key performers just after game two kind of disappeared. Most notably, uh, Trey Turner and uh, Nick Castellanos. Trey yeah, Turner, over 23. Yeah, Trey, Trey Turner after game two uh, slashed 105, 143, 105 for a 248 OPS. Uh, he had an 85 and a half mile per hour average exit velocity, 19% sweet spot rate, 13% line drive rate, z- no, uh, zero hard hit line drives and zero barrels. And last episode, I was talking about how amazing his hard hit line drive rate and his barrel rate were um, leading up to 
leading up to uh, game three of the uh, of the NLCS. Nick Castellanos after game two went 0 for 18 with a walk and nine strikeouts. Uh, it was a 47% strikeout rate after game two for Nick Castellanos. And, um, you know, I don't know if you saw his post-game comments. He was very critical of himself. It was, it was pretty, um, it was pretty refreshing to seeing, you know, a, a guy with that much open honesty and talking about how much he struggled after game two, um, and maybe even after game one, but yeah, he uh, went, he went, uh, he went over two in game two. Okay. Yeah. And where did he go in game one? Yeah. I, I'm pretty sure he went over 23 entirely. In the series, I not in the series, a... but like over his last 23. Yeah, uh, he went. Can... I mean, he went one for four in game one. He had one hit the entire series. Yeah, that's insane. It's funny because, like, you know, he was doing so well in the division series, and people were like, "Man, why do they, why do they keep putting Alec Bohm fourth when they have Nick Castellanos hitting seventh? Yeah, and I mean, Bohm did homer in Game Seven. I know that his stats throughout the playoffs weren't great, but yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, some guys just were shut down. Even Bryce Harper, like it's not as extreme as Turner or Castellanos, but Bryce Harper after Game Two hit one twenty five with a six thirteen OPS. He did have a barrel that, um, you know, went to the warning track with a guy on in Game Seven, um, but only ended up reaching the warning track and ended up, ended up being a flyout. Um, another statistic Those, uh, that Harper versus Trout discourse from like a week ago looked so bad now. Yeah, really. Like they were up two zero, and I get it. I thought the series was over when the Phillies went up two zero. I think most people did, except for Troy Lavello. Um, mm-hmm. but yeah, like it looked like a foregone conclusion that the Phillies were gonna win in Arizona. They were gonna get to the World Series, face one of the Texas teams, you know, get a revenge at the Astros or get at the Rangers. Um, and yeah, I mean, this is, I don't think I've ever felt so much like secondhand heartbreak for another franchise because like, I feel like if you're a Phillies fan, like 2011 was tough, but at the very least, a lot of that core did get their ring in 2008. This is different. Like this, I feel like this one's a different heart, type of heartbreak than, than in a 2011, because for one, you got to see this team win two different playoff series in 2011. They lost the very first one, you know? Like yeah, they, and they got shut out in Game Five, and that was brutal. But this is, I think, we're going to be talking about this team for a while as a big what if team. Yeah, you know, like the, like the same way that we talked about, like the Tigers in the early 2010s, the way that we talk about, uh, you know, the Nationals in the mid 2015 in the mid 2010s before they finally got it in 2019, like that. might and I know it's only been a two year window, and they've never even won a division, but. I feel like that's how we might be talking about this Phillies core if they don't get this close again. Yeah, very true. Because you think about like much of heartbreak comes with high expectations. And once the Phillies got past the Braves, I mean, the the Braves were going to be their biggest challenge. I mean, they were literally regular season record wise, the biggest challenge out there, 104 games uh, and, you know, won that season series eight to five against the Phillies. So you go back the Diamondbacks won 30 less games uh yeah 20 less games 20 less games so you go from that giant goliath in the braves you beat them that's your big triumph it's kind of all downhill from there you have the sixth seed coming in an 84 win team that in the regular season had more runs scored against them than they scored which is very funny to see to think about now and 
you you win game five to go up three two heading back to your stadium where you're where you've been unstoppable up to that point like i don't think anyone in their right mind was thinking that the diamondbacks were going to win both games and there's a reason why chris russo said he was going to retire if the diamondbacks won both games because it was highly unlikely that they were going to do that so yeah that is that is a heartbreaking moment especially considering this was probably an easier path than last year whether they were facing the Astros or facing the Rangers, it was going to be an easier World Series than last year. But I mean, not only no did World they Series. not only did they lose Game Six and Seven at home, but like they were, you know, they were tied going into the ninth of of uh, Game Three. That's a game they could have won if the bullpen didn't give up a run in the ninth. They were up one in the eighth inning of Game Four. They ended up completely losing in that losing it in that one. Like they had so many opportunities where you know if if a couple of bounces went our way. You know, all they had to do was win one more game, and all four of the games they lost were in some way winnable. You know, whether it's because they were at home or because it was a close game in the late innings that got away from them. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's um, it's kind of emphasized when you realize that they did outscore the Diamondbacks thirty to twenty one. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they they kind of outplayed them in some sense, I guess you could say, but they just they just didn't win in the big moments like the Diamondbacks did, and and uh, you know. I think people, I think Phillies fans will think a lot about game four, um, you know, being up five to three in that one. And I think they'll think a lot about game seven of, of going one for 10 with runners and scoring position as well. And all the opportunities they missed there. Yep. So yeah, it's a, it's a time of mourning in Philadelphia, unfortunately, but um, the Diamondbacks make their first world series in 20 years. You know, not only have they not won a world series in 20 years, they haven't been to a world series in 20 years. Um, pretty cool for that fan base considering like you know i think people have mentioned a lot they had their playoff odds on like august 11th were 13 percent, and here they are yeah you know, we didn't we didn't know they went they went under 500 in the second half yeah heading into the final like three days of the season we didn't know if either of these teams were making the playoffs and here they are you know in the world series it's pretty crazy yeah yeah, I mean, it's, it's it's two teams that we thought would get swept in the first round. It's I, yeah. I don't think either of us have picked either of these teams to win any series so far, except for you picking the Rangers against Baltimore. Yeah, but even uh, though, like, yeah, I didn't like, keep that belief for the Astros. No, like, <laughs> it's fun. I mean, the Diamondbacks have just continued to make no sense. Like, after game two, I was like, okay, finally, the Diamondbacks are playing the way I expected them to. Uh, and... You know, I was like, okay, Phillies are going to go in there and they're going to continue to dominate. And no, the Diamondbacks just continued to not make sense at all. And, uh, you know, one thing I said was like, it, it, with the Rangers was like, oh, they did the, the we won Houston chant. It doesn't work. You can't do it. Well, it worked. They did it. And it worked. They wanted yeah. Houston. They got Houston and they beat Houston. Yeah, they they wanted Houston so bad that they didn't even bother winning at home. They wanted to win in Houston yeah. the yep. entire time. <laughs> That's all exactly. they. That's all they did. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's um, it's exciting. I'm I'm the more I think about it, the more I'm excited I am for this. Like I, I feel like there's just gonna be some fun games. I feel like there's just gonna be some memorable moments because you know both of these teams have provided that for us. And mm-hmm. no matter who wins this World Series, you're gonna kind of get a a feel good, a, a feel good aspect of it. Yeah. Um, which I guess kind of transitions into what we wanted to talk about here, which was the top five, you know, players, whether it be players, managers, uh, assistant coaches, 
executives, executives owners even i don't know i don't have good I, I, don't, for an owner, I don't think there's a single owner in the world i'm like good for them they just <laughs> finally something going their way yeah right um, but uh <laughs> they, they've been so due for anything to make them happy for a while yeah but um top five people we'd be most be happy for winning a world series and I, i'm going into this not having too much knowledge of a lot of people's stories i'm sure that you know there's a lot of people that had you know had a lot of things not go their way growing up but i, I don't know every single person's story so i apologize yeah. if i'm missing a big one that you know should be talked about but um you know who are some of the so i guess i'll, to go, through, my, I'll go through my five through one list so at yeah. number five uh in terms of people i'd be most happy for if they want it I'm going with Tori Lovello. He's the manager of the Diamondbacks. And, you know, I think for me, this one more just strikes personally because of the Red Sox connection. He was the Red Sox bench coach uh, in the, you know, in the mid, uh, in the mid 2010s. And uh, he, in 2015, he took over as the interim manager of the Red Sox when John Farrell uh, stepped away for health reasons. And the team performed very well. A last place team performed very well uh, in his stint. And I wanted the Red Sox to hire him after 2016. Instead, he took the job with Arizona, made the playoffs his first year there, won manager of the year in his first year full-time as a manager. And I've always been happy for him. I've always wanted him to uh, succeed. And, you know, he came in as a big underdog. He's been kind of a big story these entire playoffs. And he's a guy that I would love to see go all the way. Yeah, for sure, for sure. I'm For me, I, I only have like... um. I only have like three guys that stand out for me. Um, maybe I'll maybe I'll just mention uh, numbers three through one for me because I, I I'm I'm having a hard time thinking of of okay. more guys because I didn't fully you know admittedly I didn't fully prepare but I think it's number fine. three for me is Tori Lavulo uh, or Lavulo Lavello 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 um, yeah like he's he has been there through the mud of the Arizona Diamondbacks. He was there for a 52 win season. And I don't know how much of it was his fault. Ultimately, probably not really his fault. He seems to be a pretty good manager, um, but he's been there through it all with the Diamondbacks. Uh, he was, you know, the highest paid bench coach with the Red Sox. I think I have his autograph somewhere, actually. Um, <laughs> funnily enough, he actually asked me like it, it was it was at um, Red Sox spring training. He was like, do you even know who I am? And I was one of the few people that probably did know who he was because it's like, Let's go. You know, you know, you, you know, how is that guy not number one? Yeah, he's he's <laughs> he's the best. He seems pretty cool for you. Um, but um, yeah, but yeah, he he seems like um, and you know, he's gone through a lot of uh people questioning his decisions throughout this playoffs. Uh, every Brandon Fod start, it, Brandon Fod start, it seems people are questioning what he does, even though it seems to work every single time. Um, so yeah, I'd feel, I'd feel positive for for Tori Lavua. Who's your uh, number four? My number four, I'm going with a guy on the Rangers. Uh, this is one of only two players I have, but it's Marcus Simeon. Uh, Marcus Simeon mm. is a guy that's, uh, I think, I think doesn't get enough appreciation, generally speaking. I mean, I think he's, for a couple of years now, been the slam dunk best second baseman in baseball uh, with Jose Altuve as a close second. And maybe just coming into this year with Altuve being injured, I think that. But, I mean, you know, this is a guy that's uh, among the top of the F4 leaderboard every year. Uh, as someone who you know participates in an F4 league, um, he's a guy, and I think the thing that most stands out for me is that he signed that contract with the Rangers before Corey Seager did. So he signed with a team for big money, coming off of a 100 loss season, uh, with 
as of at that point, no one else, you know, coming back or, you know, no new additions other than himself. You know, I think they had signed John Gray at that point, but, you know, you know, when he signed that contract, I'm imagining he was thinking, okay, I got, you know, a decade on this deal. We're going to get there at some point. He's there in year two. And I mean, it's looking like he made a great decision to invest in that team uh, when he signed with them. And, you know, I'm very happy that he's getting a lot of the national spotlight this year. I believe this is his first time uh, in the playoffs, uh, you know, with fans beyond just the wild card round ever, because, you know, I mean, I am having, adding a couple caveats there, but, you know, 2019 lost in the wild card game, 2020, no fans. Um, 2021, he was on a great Blue Jays team that missed. Uh, and I don't think he ever made it before that. Oh, 2018 also lost in the wild card game. But yeah, I mean, I'm happy that he's experiencing a deep playoff run, and I think he deserves it. Yeah, well, you know, a, a fairly underrated player too. Just like yes, kind of does it all. So he doesn't stick out in any particular leaderboards. It's outside of like wins above replacement. So it's it's not like he's a outside of that one year. It's not like he's been much of a 45 home run guy or a 50 stolen base guy or. Um, I don't know if he's won a gold glove yet. He maybe has, but even still, you know, it doesn't get the most recognition despite how great he is. Um, because I have less guys, uh, what is your uh, number three? Uh, my number three is Evan Longoria. I think this one kind of needs less of an explanation. You know, he's a guy that's uh, in his 16th professional season. He's going back to the World Series for the first time since his rookie year in 2008. Um, you know, I'm I'm happy that I think it'd be cool for him to win a World Series on a team that people would have otherwise forgotten that he even played for. Um, he's a guy that I've really wanted to make a Hall of Fame case for for a couple of years. And I know that, you know, he hasn't been a major contributor in the playoffs, um, and he still has room to do that in the World Series. But even if he's not, I think just the fact that he won a World Series would help his case a little bit. Um, and, you know, he's a guy that I think has been very easy to root for his entire career. You know, he's played for... He's, I mean, he's, I mean, the fact that he's made a World Series for both of the most recent expansion teams is pretty cool. Yeah. Like, I'm going to go ahead and assume no one else has done that. I don't think anyone was on the 08 Rays and the 2001 Diamondbacks, to my knowledge. I could be wrong about that, but I don't think so. Not, yeah, no one's standing out to me, but yeah, I mean, I think it's very cool that he's, you know, he's always played for a lot of, I think, underdog teams. And he's been, you know, for a while he was the guy on the Rays. I mean, he's the best player in their franchise's history. Um. He has a very bubble Hall of Fame case. I, I think he has, I could see him taking like a Jeff Kent type of route or maybe like a Fred McGriff type of route where he, you know, gets gets enough support to like be a conversation topic on the BBWA ballot and then maybe falls off, maybe gets in sneakily, maybe like a Larry Walker type. Um, but I think winning a World Series would help his case. Maybe not a ton, but I think it'll help. Yeah, yeah, for sure. My, my number two is uh, Evan Longoria because because of a lot of those reasons um you know he's had a spectacular career and his career dirt deserves a world series with it uh i think it would it would be really it would be really positive for um for him and just cap off a you know be one of the last things he does in in his great career you know whenever he retires whether that be after this year after next year after the year after that um you know, it would be nice to have just a World Series to that resume. Um, and yeah, I mean, he was he was on the Rays when, you know, they they don't really spend that much. They don't really are, are never really in win now mode. I Same can be said sort of for the Diamondbacks, but here they are. So 
you know, he's a he's a guy that deserves to have a World Series to his resume. So I, I would I would feel pretty good for Evan Longoria. Um, what is your number two? This one might be kind of cheap, uh, but I I I had a hard time not thinking about you know this group. But any Rangers fans that are still traumatized from 2011, uh, I'd feel very happy for. I mean, we've talked about it earlier. You know, they were one strike away from winning the World Series twice in one game. They came up empty-handed, and I mean, I would imagine most Rangers fans still think about David Freeze and think about how how terrible that loss was. You know, it's probably the most heartbreaking loss maybe that anyone's ever had in baseball history. Um, you know, it's the fact that it would have been their first World Series. Um, they still haven't gotten back to the World Series since. They've never even won. They had never even won a playoff series since, uh, I believe, right? Yeah, they never had. So, you know, if you're a Rangers fan and you've been, you know, constantly thinking about Nelson Cruz making that leap for 12 years in your in your dreams, like this this one's for you. And I, I would be very happy if you finally get to turn the page on that chapter. Yeah, for sure. If if I'm adding fans in, into the mix, that's one of the main reasons why I'm rooting for the Rangers. Yeah, because... I know we didn't really specify that one, but I was like, you know what? Like, there's no rules here. I'll I can throw that in if I want. Yeah. So in my revision, I'll also have them number two in Longoria three and Lavulo four. And then yeah. number five can be whoever. But yeah, I mean, that's a lot of the reason why, you know, I'll be I'm very inclined to see the Rangers win a World Series, you know. Longest drought, uh, out of any out of any franchise entering this playoffs. Um, you know they've been in Texas since 1972. They haven't won one, and they've gotten brutally close back in 2011, and and had more heartbreak since then as well. Um, but um, yeah, my number one. I, I think there might be overlap here, but the number one guy. You know, you you we'd most be happy for, or at least I'd be most happy for, is the Arizona Diamondbacks general manager Mike Hazen. Um, I think, you know, if you haven't followed his story and, and, you know, the things that have happened to him over the past couple of years, um, it's, it's pretty, it's, you know, pretty humbling to, to see, you know, his, his, uh, wife passed away, um, I believe, uh, around the summer of 2022 and, you know, kind of took a toll on him and, you know, even excluding that Mike Hazen, like Lavulo or like Lavello has been there for it all he's been there for the 52 win team um he's been there to kind of rebuild this Diamondbacks team rebuild this core you know add at the deadline all that and uh you know it, it would be rewarded but ultimately it's because you know I think he's talked about how like you know his his wife is here with him in spirit and you know she'd be she'd be very very happy with a with a world series championship and and you know he knows she's watching over so I think that's just the ultimate story of, of, you know, it would be the ultimate victory to, to get that win for, for him and for her. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I think a lot of baseball fans probably don't know about Mike Hazen's personal story and maybe for better, for worse, you know, I'm sure he doesn't want to just be known as the guy who has that story, but yeah, his wife, uh, I believe had brain cancer and passed away uh, last year. And they also have two very young kids as well. So it's, I mean, I can't imagine, obviously, what it's like to have to go through that for his kids, for those around him. Um, but, like, it's uh, one thing that I read about that I've seen is very cool is that the, the entire Diamondbacks organization has stepped up for him. Like, uh, Tori Lovello's wife apparently, like, was driving the kids to school. 
when he was going to visit her in the hospital. Um, you know, everyone has just stepped up for him. And aside from all that, he's, yeah, a guy that's been there for a while. He's responsible for most of the guys on this team, uh, if not all of them. I mean, he, I think he got hired, what, after 20, like, 16, 15, something like that. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think it was. I think it was after the 2016 season because I think he had one year under Dombrowski with the Red Sox. Right. So I mean, you know, this is, you know, I mean, this is very much his team. You know, I mean, I I don't know, off the top of my head, how many of the guys acquired were acquired by him. I'm sure it's at least like 85 to 90 percent. Um, yeah. And yeah, I mean, it's obviously a very feel good story. I don't have much else to add. I mean, you said it pretty kind of perfectly. Yeah, and and uh, you know, just looking at the X's and O's of it, um, as you mentioned, like how much of that team has been acquired by him, um, mm-hmm. like the I think that Christian Walker trade was was his doing that, uh, or that Christian Walker acquisition was done by Mike Hazen, yeah. the Gabriel Moreno and Lourdes Gurriel trade that's worked out tremendously. That is Mike Hazen. Um, he drafted Corbin Carroll 16th overall. It wasn't like it was an obvious choice. But Corbin Carroll was drafted 16th overall and was developed by the Diamondbacks and ended up being, um, you know, a consensus top three uh, prospect in baseball and is going to overwhelmingly win National League Rookie of the Year this year. Um, And yeah, I mean, among other guys, I think he acquired, I believe he acquired uh, Cattell Marte. Yeah, Um, that trade was after 2016. Yeah, and ultimately uh, extended him. you know, acquired. Yeah, I think acquired. Uh, yeah, I mean, he traded for Zach Gallen, um, which has ended up being a good trade for Arizona. I believe acquired Merrill Kelly. Um, so like all the all the main guys of all the mainstays of this Diamondbacks organization were you know acquired by Mike Hayes, and so it would be a job well done from him. Um, if uh, if they ultimately end up winning this world series but yeah it'll be it'll be really competitive I'm, I'm pretty excited to see what happens um yeah not only that but like every time a team wins the world series you know, you kind of look you know some fans will kind of look back and say you know okay the current gm like how many of them were those guys how many of the people were those guys how many were under the previous organ you know or previous gm like for the astros last year you know you know, James Click won his first, but there was also a lot of Lunau's guys in, you know, in 2021. You know, Alex Antopoulos won it with the Braves, but there was, uh, what was the guy's name? Uh, John, John Coppolella. That was the guy before him, right? You know, there were some of his guys because Antopoulos was hired after the 2017 season. So, like, you know, Acuna was already in the organization. Freeman was already in the organization. There were plenty of guys, right? Um, the Dodgers yeah. with Andrew Friedman might be a different one because he had been there a while. Um, I mean that'll that'll like happen Rizzo. with the um that'll happen with the Rangers if they win you know considering yeah, John Daniels Chris is Young, the GM. John Daniels exactly right like it's very cool to you know see you know how much of it was built by one guy you know in 2018 Red Sox were a perfect example because they cycle through GMs like no other team where it's like there's Dabrowski yeah. guys there's Charrington guys there's even a lot of Theo Epstein guys and he had been fired seven years before so yeah even you know, it's cool to see you know, that kind of breakdown. And I think it's very special when it's one guy that built most of it, like Mike Rizzo with the Nats in 2019. Like that team was mostly him. Andrew yeah. Friedman with the Dodgers in 2020. That was mostly him. Jeff Luna with the Astros in 2017. That was mostly him. Yeah. Yeah. And even, even um, not to trail off on the Red Sox, but even the 04 Red Sox, like a lot of that credit was given to Dan, Dan Duquette. Duquette. Yeah. Um, 
the previous GM before Theo Epstein. So yeah, like having, you know, it's, it's kind of rare to have a, have one guy be credited mostly like 90%. Like overwhelmingly. Yeah. Uh, like it's like all on him. The Red Sox will never have that. You know, when they, after, after they win the 2025 world series, like, well, I mean, you got to look at what Dave Dombrowski did that one time. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Like there's going to be credit to like Ben Sherrington for the 2025, 2026 world series. If they, if they happen to win that. Um, but the diamondbacks, you know, they stuck with their guy, whether it be Lavello, whether it be Hazen, they, they had a season where they lost 110 baseball games and they stuck with them um, and kept at it. And here they are in the World Series. Mm-hmm. How about that? How about that? As we like to say on Above Replacement Radio. We love to say that. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, I mean, I, I either team would be very fun. Like, you know, anytime you get a team winning their first World Series in franchise history, it's very cool. I've seen... In my time as a fan, I've seen two of those, right? With the Astros in 2017, the Nationals in 2019. In my lifetime, yeah. you know, I don't remember the Diamondbacks and Angels winning their first. Um, I don't remember the White Sox winning their first in 88 years because I wasn't old enough. I don't, I don't really remember the Giants winning their first. Like, I kind of remember it, but I didn't really understand the historical significance of it. It was their first, like, in San Francisco in 2010. Yeah, yeah and the, the Cubs one was a crazy one. The Cubs but... one, obviously, right, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, it wasn't there first, but yeah, I mean, everyone understood what that was. Yeah, it was, you know, their their drought was far longer than, uh, than you know, like the yeah. the Rangers, <laughs> for instance. Yeah. But yeah, I know still, they had like, already won one, but you know. And yeah, we do we do remember how close the Rangers got, and we have seen some of the moments of where the Rangers have gotten so close. It's sort of like a Red Sox effect, where you know the Red Sox in their eighty six year curse, you know they. They lost four game sevens of the World Series. Like the Rangers are in, in you know, in sort of that sentiment. They lost a game seven of the World Series. They have blown some series, blown some good opportunities um, mm-hmm. in their own sense. So them winning the World Series would be very, very relieving, you know, in a in a sense that to that fan base. So one thing that's one thing yeah. that's crazy, by the way, going back to Arizona. Um, not that this is his fault, but isn't it crazy that the Diamondbacks made the World Series before Paul Goldschmidt? Huh. Right. Yeah. Right. It, it's, it's funny. It's also funny because no one from that trade is left. Like Carson Kelly and Luke Weaver are not on the team. They're like, that's like two teams ago. Carson yeah, Kelly's Car- on Detroit now. Luke Weaver played for like three different teams this year. Yeah, the Cardinals very easily won that trade, but uh, here, the, yeah. here the Diamondbacks are. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's going along. Funny. <laughs> it is very funny that yeah that that's how it turned out <laughs> like the diamond and it's also very funny because like you know yes paul goldschmidt's the better player but like i don't think too many diamondbacks fans are too worried about it because they have christian walker at first um yeah you know, exactly not like it's not like first base has been like a glare like it's not like you know they have games where it's like man paul goldschmidt would have made this team better because you know christian walker you know yes isn't as good as goldschmidt but it makes him forget about it also, like, yeah. would the Diamondbacks have extended Paul Goldschmidt? I don't think so. Like, that's no. probably why they traded him to begin with. Yeah, they traded him with with one year left on his contract. Mm-hmm. And the Cardinals um, immediately extended him. Yeah, Like, I think it was pretty clear from the jump, listen, we're getting Paul Goldschmidt for one year, but we're really going to get him for, you know, six, seven years because we're giving him an extension as soon as we possibly can. Yeah, and ultimately, you know, Goldschmidt's best season 
in best seasons were in seasons where the Diamondbacks were not competitive. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it, it, it's, it hasn't been a disaster for the Diamondbacks organizationally. Um, but, yeah, that, that is a funny point you bring up because, I mean, that Goldschmidt trade did sort of signify the start of the rebuild for the Diamondbacks. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, the trade didn't lead to anything, but um, it I think that rebuild is is coming along pretty well. Um, yeah. ultimately so it's also funny to think about like what if the what if the cubs like won two of those games against the diamondbacks earlier in the regular season yep. yeah i mean well it, what if uh say suzuki caught that ball against the braves yeah there, i've seen so many hypotheticals where it's like you know there was that one soto uh like almost walk off grand slam that died at the track and like there's a lot of people arguing like if that ball goes out, the Diamondbacks don't make the playoffs and the Padres go on a run because that was the momentum they needed and they never got. But it's it's funny to play the hypothetical game with you know an 84 win team scraping into the playoffs and making the World Series, especially when there was such a competitive NL wild card race all year. I mean, hell, imagine if imagine if uh, the Diamondbacks got the five seed, had to go into Philadelphia and just lost that series. Yeah. Like, if they go down 2-0, that's it. And that's what they did in the NLCS. What if the Marlins have to go face the Brewers? Yeah, and... It, and they I mean, face like, the Like, it, you know... There, there's a lot of things that would have changed. Like, if the if the Diamondbacks, for however they would have been able to do it, beat the Astros in the final game of the regular season, you know, the, the Rangers get the bye, the Astros end up going to Tampa Bay. Like, how does that turn out? Diamondbacks get the five seed. What if the what if the uh, what Philly. if the Astros got more games on the road and less games at home against yeah. the Rangers? Yeah, like what? Yeah, that's that's why they play the games, as uh, I think Chris Berman says yeah. sometimes. That's why they play it, the, the games. Playoff, like the playoff format gets a lot of criticism. I think it's given us so much fun chaos this year. Maybe that's just because my favorite team didn't make the playoffs, and I've not had much of a rooting. It's like not only did. Not only did my favorite team not make it, but also like the teams that I despised didn't make it, right? Like we didn't have to, you know, you know, you we didn't have to hate watch the Yankees this year. Like we didn't have to, you know, root for any root against any team. Like there was truly not a single team in the playoffs this year where I'd have been like, damn, sucks that that team won. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't had pretty much zero rooting interest, zero strong rooting interest in any yeah. of these, uh, in any of these series, like. You know, people hate on the Astros, but if the Astros won that game seven, I'd be like, oh, this will be an interesting. I'm very uh, intrigued to see who like throws out the first pitches for some of these games. Like, do the Rangers bring out Nolan Ryan? You know, like, do they bring out Adrian Beltre if they haven't already? Do the Diamondbacks bring out Randy Johnson? I think I could tell you an answer on Kurt Schilling. Uh, (laughs) Do they bring out like Brandon Webb? Like, who, who are they rolling out for these first pitches here? You got friggin' Matt Williams and Tony Womack going out there. Yeah, like yeah, that. Luis Gonzalez, who we should have mentioned earlier. Yeah, Tony Womack would be one. Brandon, yeah, Brandon Webb. They, they all have vacation both teams, plans. Both for teams the... have both teams of Ian Kennedy coming out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, yeah. I, 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 I'm very intrigued because, like, maybe hell, maybe the Rangers have like Elvis Andrews, who literally played this year, coming out. Yeah, that's true. I mean, that's a. Major, Nelson Cruz, uh, Nelson Cruz, who played this year. You know what the yeah. you know what the Diamondbacks should do. Um, what should they do? They should bring out David Freeze. 
Yeah, they should really. Like never when played you, for them. Played for a division rival, actually. When you said Nelson Cruz, I was like, I don't know about that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> maybe, maybe it's like putting Neftali Feliz <laughs> out there. Yeah, I think that. Hear me out, Arizona. Listen, listen. If you're if you're hearing this, I, I get a flight for David Freeze. Yeah. Bring him out. I know he didn't ever suit up for you guys, but like. Anything, anything for a competitive edge. Absolutely, I know. I know Evan Carter. Evan Carter will be really triggered. Yeah, yeah, for <laughs> yeah, his ten-year-old self. Yeah, who was had no association with the Rangers or even close to it at the time. But it would be pretty. It would be pretty badass. You know what? The, you know what the that. Diamondbacks should do. They should bring out. They should bring out uh, to trigger Rangers fans. They should bring out Bruce Bochy. <laughs> the the manager of the 2010 Giants. Well, yeah, I want. I wonder what he's doing right now. I think that's well, the, probably probably enjoying retirement somewhere, right? Probably, yeah. I know he retired after what was it, 2020, 20, 2019. Yeah, it I mean, it's very funny because I've seen so many Giants fans being like, "This sucks. We missed the playoffs, and now Bruce Bochy." Like they're saying it as in like a oh we shouldn't have let Bruce Bochy go it's like no nah, man he resigned yeah. <laughs> like he went out on his terms he did not plan on managing again and just got the itch i guess yeah rangers it is very wild like i said this to you the other day but like i don't think it will happen but like the way that teams gravitated towards the royals model in 2015 i wonder if they do it with the rangers after you know if they win this year it's like go out spend all of the money it doesn't matter if it's on two or three players that you're giving six hundred, seven hundred million dollars to. Just like, and the the you know, it's not even like they had a crazy good farm system either. Like they had a solid farm system, but not like, hey, if we if we combine these developing players with this win now team, we'll be in the World Series in two years. Like I don't think that was part of the plan. Yeah, no, it wasn't even like the Padres who like when they started spending money, the Padres had like a top five farm yep. system. Like Rangers were maybe like fringe top ten, but. Like, yeah, after 2021, when we talked about the Rangers getting all these free agents, it was like, it was like kind of a question of like, why? Like, I feel like you're wasting some of the some of the we should, we should listen back to those episodes. I wonder if we straight up like, because I mean, let's be real. Nobody, no fans have them in the World Series in two years. Yeah, I talked about the Bruce Bochy hiring being like, it, that's kind of a win now move. And they're not really prepared to win now. And look at them yeah. in the World Series. So as we've, uh, you know talked about the implications of these series of this series it's time to get into a little bit of predictions um it's gone rough for both of us so far this postseason but luckily we only have one left um what do you got for this series yeah it's been a year to forget in terms of predictions standings Mm -hmm. predictions players to watch postseason predictions it's been bad across the board so trying to end off on a high note i'm gonna go rangers and six uh I, I think, you know, Zach Gallen has struggled in these postseason matchups. You know, he's going to be starting game one against Montgomery, game five against Montgomery. Um, I don't know how that's going to go, uh, to be honest. Um, and, yeah, I think I think I see the Rangers winning in six. Yeah, and... Um, with that, I got to go, unfortunately. I'll let you give your prediction. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I'll preface this by saying I think I think it was a reply or a quote tweet to somebody that was talking about the... World Series not really being compelling to a national audience, and people draw drew a parallel 
to the 1991 World Series between the Twins and the Braves, which ended up mm. being maybe the greatest World Series ever. Mm. I'm not saying this one will be the greatest one ever, but I think this is going to be better than a lot of people think it will be. And the Rangers are going to take this in seven. They're going to do it in front of their home crowd. And uh, it's going to be it's going to be a party over there. But I think it's going to be a really good series here. And the Rangers are going to take it in seven. Should we do uh, should we do World Series MVP predictions? Just World Series MVP. Um, that's I'm not question. going off of anything. I'm just going off of pure who comes to mind. Uh, hmm. Ah, that's a good question. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go with Josh Young. I'm going to go with the rookie. You're going to go with Josh Young. For the I'm second probably... straight year, a rookie wins World Series MVP. I'm trying to think of someone who, like, hasn't been dominating yet. Um, Because I feel like, like, there's a lot of good choices in Montgomery, Ivaldi. Garcia, even Evan Carter is a good option. Josh Young is a good guy, a, a good sneaky guy. Yeah. Um, and Corey Seager is kind of the obvious choice, but I'll stick with one of those guys. I'll say Nathan Eovaldi wins World Series MVP. It just seems All like right. he's just going to come out and perform, keep performing no matter what. Um, All right. Well, that shall do it for this installment of Above, Above Replacement Radio. Um, I'm going to go. And uh, yeah, peace out to Daniel Curran. You can follow him on social media at Daniel underscore Curran. Um, that is on Twitter and Instagram at Daniel underscore current. Follow me on Twitter at Chris underscore Gianta. And if you are listening on the uh, Apple podcast or Spotify platforms and want to watch the conversation as it happens, go to the YouTube channel. It is called Above Replacement Radio. Um, and uh, that is where you can find, you know, the visual aspect of the show. Also, the the YouTube shorts, which I hopefully will be getting more getting back into with this uh, new laptop that I have. But um. Regardless, um, if you, uh, yeah. Um, with all that being said, that shall do it for this installment of Above Replacement Radio. We hope you enjoyed this one, and we hope to see you next time where we will be talking about some of the games that just happened in the 2023 World Series. See you then. This conversation. This conversation is over. Is over.